and welcome back to another episode of the Geek Whispers. I'm Amy Lewis. I'm Matt Brender. And I'm John Mark Troyer. And we are hosting a very special guest this week, answering questions that we have all had for a long time. Um, I'm not going to hesitate without further ado. Ed Saipet, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Wait, is this, this isn't speaking in tech? No, I didn't use a gerund to say we were editing our way into another week. You could you could end quitting or 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 uh, <laughs> job changing, hopping? Jo- job hopping our way. <laughs> that would have worked. <laughs> we might have to go back and add that in post. So, so Ed, can you uh, do a quick introduction for the four people who may not be speaking in tech listeners? Yeah, no, we only have four listeners. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, um, Ed Zypet, I, my day job, I work at IBM, um, in the private cloud group in the cloud business unit. And essentially I work in the office of the CTO. And what that entails is basically being Jesse Proudman's like clone or number two. So when he gets overworked or, or, you know, he doesn't have the bandwidth to do something, um, I pitch in and, and help. Uh, and a lot of those activities really have been focused in probably, I'd say, two two major areas, maybe three. So the first one is interactions with customers. We do customer visits and customer calls. So you could co- almost like look at that as a pre-sales activity. And then the other thing we do is we spend time at conferences, uh, not AWS reInvent going on this week, obviously. Um, but we spend a lot of time at conferences, uh, giving talks and preparing materials and stuff like that. And then I would say the third thing is internal enablement. So we spend time uh, with the internal groups, uh, product sellers, you know, just a, a large smattering of different groups inside, really evangelizing or advocating on what our specific focus area is, which is OpenStack private cloud. See, this is uh, so fascinating because I am a weekly listener to uh, Speaking in Tech. And uh, our first question for you was going to be, what the hell do you do anyway? Because we realized we all knew bits and pieces. But uh, that is a very helpful explanation. I would ask, what is the title? What what title do you use? Is it on your business card? What, uh, what do you I just uh, senior director, office of the CTO. Or sometimes I'll just skip the senior director part. Just put office of the CTO. And it's... I mean, I actually had this, this a similar type of role at uh, CenturyLink working under Jared Ray, who was part of the Tier 3 organization. So it's not a foreign role to me. It's something that I've, I've done for, for a while now. Well, it's, uh, oh, somebody, yeah. well we all have Go something ahead. to say. Ooh. Hey, I was going to say, um, well, one, that's super interesting because I was going to ask where on the org chart is that. So Office of the CTO. I've seen the offices of the CTO kind of as a role and as a group evolving over the past five or 10 years. It's something very interesting because it lets, you know, geeks, the technologists, because you started off as a technologist, and maybe that's one of my questions right. is how'd you get there. But it, it lets them, it, it, it's almost like, a, well, like you say, you do pre-sales, you do kind of product management, you do evangelism, you do, uh, you know, steering. Yeah, well, I guess that's product management. Yeah. You do, you're kind of first, cu- you often are from the customer base, often the best kind of office of the CTO people. So you're kind of like customer zero. And uh, so, I don't know, all the, th- all the above, right? Yeah, yeah. And so it, it actually, where we actually just went through uh, a reorg, or we're going through one right now where um, IBM's kind of 
aligning the cloud view so there's more of a tribe mentality or concept, um, it'll still be very much the same function, though there were a few more added responsibilities around filling technology holes with partners and, and other groups within IBM. But that being said, the office of the CTO is a really weird position. And I don't know if I'm, uh, I know, you know, Matt, you talked about having this question. I don't want to tee up a softball, but I, I don't know. I really question how well office of the CTO works. I remember when I was at EMC and I think, I don't remember if I was, I asked Stu this or I was working because Stu was used to be in the office of the CTO at EMC and he was doing some pretty, pretty interesting stuff. I think around FCOE. I believe it was, but I remember having a conversation with somebody at EMC and the thing that they said that can sometimes happen, which I'm starting to, I, I think, I think it is a pattern is that people who are in the office of the CTO, essentially what they've become is like super evangelist. You're not, you're not like a, you know, a subject matter expert who is dedicated to a region anymore. You're supposed to be the person who is tightly aligned with the folks setting strategic technology direction, and you're supposed to help communicate communicate that to customers, and to uh, the field internally, and also product groups internally. the The problem with it that I've seen happen twice now, and I and I think I I I, tr I think that this happened for sure at CenturyLink, and this started to happen a little bit at, at IBM. But what happens is that when you're a remote worker, especially. Um, and you're not in a product group or you're not part of the sales team, sometimes you end up getting put on an island where you're not used, I, I guess, as much as you, you could be or should be. So what ends up happening is the people who know who you are, those are the folks who will always come to you, and that's how you keep busy. And then there will be special projects and stuff like that where, you know, like I was saying, Jesse might not have bandwidth to do something, but an example is, you know, nobody had ever done a TCO calculator for IBM Blue Box products. And so that was something where they were like, hey, Ed, we need this in a week. Can you help turn something around? And and by the way, TCO calculators suck. They are incredibly <laughs> like they, they they are nebulous. And then spreadsheets start, and magic, spreadsheets and magic. Absolutely. <laughs> so then you go off and you do those kinds of side projects. But, um, you know, it, sometimes it can get a little frustrating. You know, in these in this particular type of role, the other thing that happens is that since you don't own the product, sometimes it is hard. Like you can end up just as much of an uh, just as much of an outsider as customers do with regards to their connection back to product management directly. Like you'll get you'll get like you know release updates and you know people will tell you what's going on, but they'll do it in this context of how they update um, a broader audience inside of a company. So. Yeah, you become yet another consumer of somebody else's service because the people see you as a phalange as opposed to like a core part of the organization. Right. Um, I just want to jump in and say one thing because uh, the reason I asked for your title, and it's interesting that John was asking about place in the org as well, is, uh, well, I was worried that the evangelist title might rear its head because uh, I know that certainly comes with a, a bit of weight. Um and I'm curious what you think about the sort of office of the CTO. I feel like it's also, um, it can be uh, very explanatory and clear. And I think it can also be a challenge. Have you found that that cuts both ways? Yeah, I, I think absolutely. Um, you know, I'm starting to question how effective 
like I was, you know, it, how effective the office of the CTO well, really there, is. There's how effective is the org and how effective is the title, which are slightly different, I think. Yeah, the, 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 the <laughs> they get blended. Both. They get blended. Yeah. yeah. You know? <laughs> they, they do. Um, you know, it, the, the, the office itself is, can be just as nebulous because it really depends on who's really driving technology decisions. You're, you're, you can be an effective evangelist without a doubt, because you're the one getting you're, you should be closest to the information and you're supposed to carry a bit of credibility or weight along with it. I, and I think that's kind of what, you know, what you were saying is that there's a, there is, you know, a little bit of weight on your shoulders, but really it just, it comes down to customers think for some reason that, you know, you, and it's true. Sometimes it's true. It's not true. Other times that you have a better connection into product. Therefore you are better able to communicate what they need and you're better able to communicate the most recent latest and greatest stuff that you're doing. So mm. essentially the, the whole hope there, what we pitch is the value is that somebody, the office of the CTO and people who represent the office of the CTO are supposed to, to represent a more direct conduit to everybody in the organization. And you know how everybody likes to pick up the phone and like, Hey, I'm going to call this person because they're, they always know what's going on or they should always know what's going on. Um, that's the idea behind it. Like I said, uh, in both companies, I found that it sometimes it's like that. Sometimes it's not really like that. Yeah. No, it sounds like you're supposed to span the silos, help um, build conduits into each and every product group, which is an ideal we can all get behind. But in practice, especially as a remote worker, can be challenging. Right. Um, but I want to ask a couple things about your job. So you've got a pretty senior title as a senior director. Um, do you have direct reports? No, I don't. Um, I, it's one of those things where you can take two different tracks within IBM. You can manage people or you can take more of the engineering track. And um, when I came in, I said I wouldn't mind managing people, but it hasn't really been something um, that I absolutely need to do in a job, a job role or function. It's not something that I sit there and say, Jesse, how can I grow my team to a team of, you know, five or 10? I think that, you know, some of the other conversations that I had um, were, you know, people have asked me, do you want to go into product management? And I actually think in, in a lot of companies, it's really hard to do product management and work remotely like that. You know, a lot of companies, that's just a, they won't allow it. Um, but I think if that were a scenario where I did manage a product, I think that, that it would be something that I, I would definitely wouldn't mind having direct reports. But again, it's, you know, you really have to own something to really deserve direct reports. And Kim Bannerman owns, um, the other part of advocacy and sometimes people get confused and they're like, how do you di differ from what Kim's team does? And, um, because she essentially has a team of, I think four, maybe I think it's four advocates now. And the reality is I do a lot of the same stuff they do. It's just that the expectation is that I can, I can carry the weight of, of Jesse in public with more credibility, I guess, than maybe somebody who's more junior. Interesting. Yeah. And then the one other question I'm obligated to ask contractually as part of the Geek Whispers is, is uh, do you have firm metrics that you're supposed to deliver on? Or is it, <laughs> I, based on everything you're saying, I think it's pretty fluid, um, but it's, it's always worth asking. Um, no, there's no firm metrics. There is, you know, a lot of it boils down to, are you helping move the needle and accomplish things, random things that need to get done? A lot of times 
you know, you walk in and you, you end up becoming a fixer too. Um, where it's, again, since, since you have, you know, such and such senior title or you work for these people and you report to them directly, um, if we're in a major hangup or a major jam, you know, you can help get things done or get them done quicker or whatever. Um, so I think a, a lot of the, uh, I think when you're, when you end up becoming the senior on paper, the expectation is that people will feel the need they'll you'll, they will need you or they'll have that feeling of, we, you know, he helps us this way, this way, this way. We can't really say that he did six customer visits, uh, this month and he did, you know, two, you know, cause sometimes you'll have laws where people will be like, Hey, you know, we're not really doing a whole lot. We've got things covered. So just go work on, you know, this container side project or something like that. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so things, like, yeah, things, yeah. things are, things are like you said, they're fluid. They change all the time. That helps a lot establish who you are and, uh, and what you're doing. So of course I, we like to go in reverse order. Uh, we want to find out both how you got there and, and I know you've not taken anywhere near a direct path. Um, you've, you've hopped a lot and, and what's more, I kind of appreciate you've, you've flaunted conventional wisdom in some ways and, and told people that you've hopped a lot. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about how you got where you are and the pros and cons of, uh, of hopping between jobs? Yeah, sure. So I, I worked for a newspaper for about seven years. Um, and towards the end of this stint, I just got tired of, I felt like we weren't making very much progress and we weren't moving the needle and you, you have all these great solutions, but none of them can be implemented because you don't have enough money or too slow, you know, you, whatever. Um, so I did that for about seven years and that was probably, that was my second job out of high school. I did, I did not go to, I did not go directly to college and pass go and collect $200 or lose $200, whatever college does to your, to your bank account. Um, so I, I got tired of being an end user for a while, and I actually reached out to one of our VARs uh, at the time, and I, you know, but, basically but, so started... So to be clear, you were, kind of, you were in IT at the news. I was in IT. Okay. I, yep. I had always been in IT, um, and yeah, that's just kind of where I had my passion. Um, so I, I went to this VAR, stayed there for three and a half years. I started a VMware practice, and this VAR was tiny. Midwest, Indiana, we covered... Indiana and a couple of states around us. And we had like nine people, but it was a fun job. And I got to cut my teeth on doing a lot of, I didn't know storage back then. I knew, I knew like I was a person who knew Solaris and Linux. I like sysadmin, app admin kind of stuff, but I love to dive into new technology. So I joined the storage bar, learned a lot about storage. And then I ended up um, getting us to adopt VMware. And I basically started the VMware practice. I managed the relationship with VMware. Um, I got sales reps selling VMware and it actually was, it was a big deal. Um, and through that, I ended up running into a bunch of EMC people at partner exchange. And I ran into Chad Sackage and Aaron Chase and, and a lot of the people that, that we know mutually in our community. Um, and it took about a year. Uh, but I kind of was done with the VAR. I hadn't just, you know, it was, it was a weird relationship in a company with two owners. Um, but I, I just kind of said I was done and I wanted to go work for a big vendor. Uh, and so 
that's what I did. And I went and worked for, for with, at EMC for about a year and a half. And then people were like, hey, uh, you've got service provider skills because that's what my area of focus of. So I had these service provider skills that were in growing demand because cloud was heating up. It was virtualization, a bunch of other stuff. And so I, you know, I had a couple of options. Uh, one was with VCE, two of them were internal EMC, and then one was at Joint. And just like I run into very cool people who end up introducing me to somebody. That's how most of these things happen. Um, I have not had a job. Uh, I have not had a job where I didn't know the people or the team or had not known them for at least about a year before I joined the company. So I have not, I've not really even interviewed for a job since the newspaper, which Good was man. Yeah, hey, like wanna, 16 years ago. I want to pull something apart though, right? You, how many years did you spend at the newspaper? 11? Six. Six. Okay. Six. So six years, that's a good tenure. Especially yeah. these days, right? So I want to call into question, Amy. You 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 frame the question maybe by saying Ed Ed's had a lot of jobs. Uh, he's not some millennial that spent nine months at uh, twelve different <laughs> startups, right? The man spent six years, like actually doing real work and like uh, you know setting stuff up and running stuff and being called when things didn't work right. He put his time. It, in. It's actually an interesting question. I wonder if we all have a little bit of a, a you know a curve in terms of if you plotted experience are we are we destined to increase our burn rate the older we get or uh the more experience we get in the workplace um i'm just curious if your if your uh career has followed that pattern and also like i i think there might be an impression out there in the tech community as, as a listener of the podcast that you're on ed and also i don't know it, it seemed like the joke was that ed had a new job every week yeah. um for the last few years. So I think I kind of set us up for that. And uh, I'm curious if that impression has any truth to it. Like, um, so how many jobs you had the six year stint and then yeah. how many jobs have you had since then? So, so the six year stint ended in Oh nine. And from there I did EMC year and a half joint about a year and a half. Uh, ink tank nine months and CenturyLink two and a half years, and IBM now over a year. It really depends. So, Amy, you, you're one of the first things you, you asked was, does does kind of the the half life of your jobs go down as as your career as you get older? And right. the answer for me is not necessarily. It all mm -hmm. has to do with dynamic environment. So when I left CenturyLink, CenturyLink, I, I didn't I didn't really. I don't really think I'm going to be at a job for a certain amount of time or not. I just kind of keep going until I feel like things have fizzled out. And so at CenturyLink, um, you know, it was, I, I had been talking to Jesse at Blue Box, which actually is in Seattle. CenturyLink was in tier three, we're based in Bellevue. It was really interesting where you had Jesse Proudman and you had Jared Ray, both super smart individuals who started up companies. And I, and I worked for them and I, the reason why I left CenturyLink was I, I was extremely underutilized and getting super bored. And I think, you know, again, that's where I said, this is the weird thing that sometimes happens to people who are in the office of the CTO is that when you're in some of these larger legacy enterprise businesses, your, your job function really is to evangelize what you have. And that doesn't change a whole lot over time. So sometimes you get a bit bored. Um, you know, I think, um, 
you know, I didn't expect to be there for two and a half years, but I did end up staying there. And, and like, I had a, I had a great ride, but towards the end, you're just like, I, I just don't feel like I am integrated into the system as well as I could be. And I really long for that feeling, you know, that I had when I worked at EMC, you know, being on the V specialist team, I will tell you it was one of the best jobs that I ever had from a team perspective, you know, working with 30 to 50 people. And I know our team got a lot bigger, but you really interacted with 30 to 50 people and you were all family. And I really, after a bunch of these job hops, I really longed for that. And I wasn't getting that. So that's what made me make my decision to, to kind of bolt from CenturyLink. So Matt, Matt may, and, and, John may have rightfully said that I framed the question oh, right. in an unfair way. Um, do you feel like a job hopper or do you think that's an image you cultivate uh, because it, it serves you in some way? I, I felt, uh, no, it doesn't serve me. I think it's one of those things where it's <laughs> like uh, you wore two different socks. And I know that's all the rage with teenagers these days, but it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, this is some obvious shit right here. Like you can't, you, when you go, when you go to refi a mortgage and they're like, uh, send us, uh, your employment history and they get your employment history. And they're like, can you type up a document that says why you left every one of these? No, in, 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 in there, uh, well, it was actually, that? yeah, yeah, yeah. We, oh, I refied man. with my ex-wife like two years ago or three, whatever, I think it was like four years ago. And then I, I, I refied again and I didn't have to do this again. But when we refied the first time they were like, uh, you know, explain yourself, explain yourself. And, and so basically uh, the one thing that I didn't mention is that through all of those job hops in the six years, I, I was also uh, fortunate enough. And I, you never, you have never, you never have any idea how long this will last, but I got a 20% raise every time I hopped. I, there's not a lot of, you know, if, if you stay in one place, that's the other thing is, you know, you, after two years, they kind of say that you're, you're losing yep. out on some opportunities. Um, yeah, so it was really easy to write your, up your this Your 3% letter. raise should be enough for you, if that. If that. <laughs> right, ex exactly. So I, I, to I, use a more boring life stuff, you talk about, you know, it was kind of a, a moment whenever you had to refi. Um, they always say, if you don't, if you don't look for a new insurance company every few years, same yeah. thing, you get stuck with higher and higher rates. It's, so it's right. an interesting concept of just as a discipline, we should do this. Yeah. And I, and I, like I said, in the beginning, I fell into this and I did feel like a job hopper. And it, to me, it did like when that mortgage thing happened, I, when I wrote it down I was like, I left this place because, so when I, when I was writing this, this, you know, mortgage paper, I, I kind of felt not bad necessarily, but it felt weird. Like I'm listing four or five jobs that I've like left in, in the last, you know, I, I do keep job hopping. And then I'm like, yeah, but I just put that every, almost, I think like everyone, but one was, I got paid a lot more. Like, why, why are you, you know, don't hassle me, go away people. Um, so you do feel, you know, you, I don't, I personally don't think it looks good to not be able to stay at a job for more than a year, year and a half. I was fortunate enough and CenturyLink kind of broke that concern for me because I stayed there for two and a half years and I could have stayed there for longer. Um, so I, I don't really worry about it. And I think most of the reasons why I left were, you know, things either around um, the team or other opportunities being presented to me. Like the, the thing that happened at EMC was they were like, 
I said, I really want to go work at VC. I want to focus on service providers. There's an opportunity. I can go do this. And they were like, uh, you can go, but no title change or pay raise. And the focus and scope was completely different. And I, I, you know, I, I, what I said was I have to do what's right for myself and my family. And, you know, I, I had made that decision in my head that I was going to move on. And that's kind of what's happened at most of these places. Like, you know, there's been a couple of companies that I've been at where I, you know, toxic management, like I can't, I cannot handle that. I just, I can't butt heads and, and have a high stress situation. So there's been a couple of those places, but the other ones have, have really been like, yeah, you know what? Um, there's just been this opportunity that's been put in front of me and I got to go. Well, that ties in nicely, actually, to uh, how do you choose the next thing? And it sounds, uh, you tell me, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but the way you describe it, um, there's method to your madness. But do you feel like some of it is sort of luck of the draw? Some of it is timing, fate, whatever? Uh, or is it all very intentional? Um, it's in, in my case, it's not intentional at all. Uh, mm. I, I, if you look at my role in the things that I do since I've been at EMC, other than being at Ink Tank and doing director of alliances and channels, which that was probably my most fun work work. Like that is, that was the most fun job that I had. Um, not necessarily that, you know, the atmosphere around the startup and the conditions that Ink Tank was in, but really the, the role itself. So that role started off as biz dev, which is sales. And that was something where I was like, okay, I'm willing to entertain this. Um, people had said before to me in my past, like, you're awesome. You're able to straddle both the technical side and the BD sales side. Yeah. And so I, I gave it a whirl. My discipline though around sales is just, I, I don't have, you know, there's people who will call you six times a day saying, Hey, where are we at? What are we doing? I actually got super lucky at Ink Tank because we ended up selling, I guess, with relationships. So 80 to 90% of the deals that we actually closed with alliance partners or channel partners, like mm-hmm. they would buy third tier support or something from us. Um, so we kind of walked naturally mm-hmm. in a situation where we had to enable these people and that worked out great. So I had this kind of experience in those roles, but I had no idea what I was going to run into. And that was probably one of my riskier jobs. Um, and then, you know, Ink Tank started to run low on cash and I started to get a little bit of a, a you know, worry because I have a kid and mortgage and all this other stuff. So I, I, so I did phone a friend and I called Jonathan King, who's at CenturyLink. And we had talked after I just had joined uh, Ink Tank and he's like, come over here, come, come to, come to Savis. It's awesome. And, you know, I, I, I knew that I had a backup. So basically I reached out to a friend and, and so that's been a couple of them too. Right. It's not. It's not always been like there definitely is no method to the madness. And then I will tell you most of these situations, um, I think other than joint was kind of like a warm intro. I knew Jason Hoffman, but I didn't know Jonathan King was going to be hiring me. Other than that, you know, I've been friends or I've known the the people that I end up working for for at least a year. Amy, I mean, notice. So one, he had, so Ed had moved into a business, a biz dev kind of a role. And so, so part of his job was meeting people. So therefore he had yeah. a bigger network than like if he had stayed an engineer or if he had stayed like a regional right. SE or, or something like that, he wouldn't have met as many other people in the industry who were potential employers. But so I want to take a quick jump and, and ask, 
Ed, did you ever worry about moving from technical to kind of technical slash biz dev that, that you would lose something or that you were either one that wasn't scary and two, would you lose like your technical chops? You, you, you do. I don't think I had a fear. I just, my whole mantra for living life is you just, you just kind of go with the flow. You don't, you don't, you can't really control things. You can pick some certain paths. Um, so you go with the flow. I, you know, I know that I've definitely lost my technical chops compared to when I just left as an end user. And sometimes, you know, they're rejuvenated. Like I, you, I'll do personal things that I'll start messing around with containers or doing things for, for my own personal reasons. But definitely, I'm not the person doing the implementation. I think that's what got me a lot of credibility in the beginning. So I try to stay somewhat in the loop in terms of what we're using. I make sure that I'm using the products that we have. I make sure that you know I'm talking to people who are developing the products. Also, interactions with customers make you get technical chops real quick because you don't look like an idiot, but they'll ask you a question that you don't know the answer to. By interacting with customers, you 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 get up to speed real quickly, you know, when you have to interact with engineering and you have to interact with customers, if you're not familiar with what the, ch the challenge is that they're trying to solve, um, you learn pretty quickly. So I have a bit of it, but I definitely know it's, it's never the same as when you're doing the implementation. Um, and that's, like I said, that's, that's what gave you a lot of credibility, but you know how to speak intelligently enough about something that as long as you're not lying to a customer, you you pretty much kind of you know pave your own way so to speak and and so you know I think the other that's actually a really great point the sort of iron sharpens iron concept um, and I appreciate your distinction there too of being able to be truthful with a customer because you're right that is a um, it's political capital you just can't afford to burn or you won't be able to get that next job right um, but it is distinct from time you might spend in a home lab or um, a full implementation, but, uh, but also uh, all important, not sort of placing one hierarchically above the other. I just think that's an important distinction. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, and I, I think, you know, the, the other thing was when people said they valued somebody who could straddle the line between biz and tech, and I think now it's turning into a dime a dozen, but back when somebody said, you're really good at this and they valued that, and that's what allowed some of these career doors to open. Um, it, it was a huge benefit to me. So I, at that time, I really, I had enough of the technical cred to keep me going where it was absolutely worth the risk because all of these new benefits were coming. Well, kind of random question, but, but actually serious because one thing we talk about here is the importance of a network. And John pointed out that in the role you had, you were able to craft a larger than average network. Um, did your time on speaking in tech because it's known, it's syndicated on the register. It have you found that helps, or do people have your kind of radio persona in mind and not your work persona? Because in some ways, I think they're quite different. So for me, speaking in tech, um, there is somewhat of a known audience, and I have run into people who know me from there, but I. I don't really experience other than like we have this big echo chamber, our, our circle of people, you know, we've known each other in the community for a long time. So a lot of people in that, that community know me other than that, going to shows and stuff like that, I don't really run into the, Oh my gosh, you're Ed. Like, so I, the persona that I have speaking in tech feels like a side gig. There have been some instances though, like I met with a super large shipping company um, that delivers a lot of iPhones and, 
when I was sitting there at the end of the meeting, having a good discussion, I wasn't even the primary person talking. I, I do pipe up every now and again, but all of a sudden at the end of the meeting, the guy was like, I know you, you're, you, you co-host speaking in tech. And like <laughs> my face turned beet red. Cause uh. you guys know the podcast. Like there are, I, I do a, I do a, what I, I do a very good job of fertilizing the grass with F bombs, like and all sorts of stuff. Right. So there's turned, a certain persona. Yeah. 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 There's a persona with that. So I was like, uh, I'm, do you, do you like, the podcast? <laughs> and, and he was like, yeah, I love your show. Like, Oh, great. By the way, like, let's connect on LinkedIn. Let's hook up. So that's happened a couple of times. But but uh, but by, it's only happened at a handful of places. So, I mean, I can count, you know, on two hands, the, the number of times where the podcast persona is actually kind of intermingled with with who I am. Other than that, I, that's why I said I'm convinced we only have four listeners, because it's like it's like depending on the week, maybe John has time, maybe Matt has time, maybe you have time. And you guys together with a couple other folks get the number to four or five. And I'm kind of happy with that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't be that modest. Um <laughs> You guys get some good coverage. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, it is, a, a, you know, only a certain subset of, of the greater however many hundred thousand million IT people, you know, probably do listen to the podcast. That is true. But the the weird part for me has been you don't sometimes know who the casual but but frequent listeners are and it will pop up. So it's happened to me a couple of times. You're right. It's not like every day, but uh, an SE will come back from a meeting and say, I met with somebody who knew you. Um, they listen to your podcast and it's always kind of a weird feeling. So for me, it's always been very indirect where you're, you're more out there in those calls where it could happen when you show up, you know, you badge in and suddenly they're like, Hey, I know your voice. <laughs> well, see, but you never, you don't find out about that until like, it's too late. Like you, you're, so you're not able to use that to be chummy with them or, you know, kind of leverage that in a positive way. It's almost, you just <laughs> wonder if everything you said was put into doubt because they were wondering when you were going to say the F word and you know, <laughs> it, it gets a little nerve wracking, but, um, but yeah, like, you know, it's, it is, it is weird. It is weird meeting people who listen to the podcast, but there've been so few occurrences that I'm like, yeah, I am, I am not Joe Rogan. I am not like blah, blah, blah. I'm not, I'm not a celebrity. There are a lot of people though that, that I think like you'll interact with and they'll say, Oh yeah, I, I, I've, I've heard you, but you'll, yeah. You know, it's not something that's a big deal. Well, here's another kind of side to that question. Do your bosses listen to the podcast? And do you know if they do? My No, because my boss would say smart ass shit every week if he listened to the podcast regularly. <laughs> so I know he doesn't listen to the podcast regularly. Um, I'm trying to think. Most of, most of my bosses or people that are in my work circle don't listen to the podcast that often. It's solid fire people did. And it was, it's something I had to get used to. That's so cool though. It is. Yeah. And at the same, to your point, like you, well, you've just made you've some got a, stupid joke last week. And then the, every, right. you know that everyone's heard you make the stupid joke. Well, and, and you're, you're right. So, and I think, I think the difference there is that there's generally, I feel, and, and even talking to you guys and not, you know, off this podcast, I feel like you guys are still the same people that I know and have a conversation with. Now we're talking about a specific subject, but we've talked about many different subjects in the course of interacting. So I feel like I'm talking to the real you. And I feel like when I'm talking to people other than, 
maybe throttling back the F-bombs. Mm. I'm pretty much the same on the podcast uh, that I am in, in person with these people. So it's they get the same persona. So it doesn't – there is the, though, John, you set it up right. Like, hey, by the way, I'm drinking a glass of wine while I'm doing this podcast. Sometimes you'll let a joke slip and you'll be like, ooh, like – what, ooh, yeah, should I have, should I have said that or whatever? And so you're right. Like there is a little bit of that that cringe factor that I can absolutely understand that you'd having. Or did, yeah, did I make a joke about this person or this person's company last week? Uh, yeah, so let me try to remember. I, I, I try I try to be. I I think the only company that we really like that I had to say that I probably would never get a job at was at Nutanix, and that was because my fury around the, you know, the BS around women and just like the lack of sensitivity when you should be sensitive. Like I, I judge them. And by the way, IBM's made the same mistake. We did this, this really stupid hairdryer thing for STEM, which was like women hack a hairdryer, like WTF. They, there's, you know, people tweeted back, like we hack rockets. Like we, you know, we do bio I build brains stuff. for a living. Exactly. What do you do? Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, so we've done that, but, but I try not to kick people in the nuts too hard just because, you know, you never know where, like you said, Amy, and where we were talking about where your job goes. I never know. It's not scripted. I don't know if I'm not, I, I could have to call, I could have to call, you know, Vaughn and be like, yo, bro, you guys hiring over there? I can wear some orange socks. I can, I can, <laughs> I, can I can do whatever y'all need me to do. Um, you just never really know what you're going to encounter. So I, I, I do have a tendency on my exit interviews to be very frank. And some people have said that I, I burn the bridge while I'm standing on it. That being said, I try not to kick people in the nuts on the podcast. And hopefully when I do share some very frank criticism about a company or a product or a person or whatever it is, it's, it's because I want things to be better. It's not because I want them to be, to be bad necessarily. Well, it, it's one of those things that I think if you – I always say I have to be willing to say to somebody's face what I would say behind their back. And if you keep those things in balance, then you are who you are and right. and you can, you can make it work. But it yeah. segues, it segues nicely into um, my very favorite question, which is um, on the journey you've been on, uh, what is one thing you wish you could have a do over, take it back, what is one one choice? Maybe a, it doesn't have to be a job hop because I wouldn't want you to call out a particular company and say that was a, a wrong choice. But what is in this journey as you've as you've made this life and kind of gone from place to place? What is one thing you would never do again? Ooh, I don't know if the never do again, but let me tell you about two things that I I wish I could have figured out and had to do over. Mm -hmm. um, I was at a particular startup and we were running low on cash. And you're never really supposed to say, hey, we're going to give you stock uh, instead of your salary. You can't do that. <laughs> you, it's just not allowed to start up. Bad form. Yeah. Bad form. But sometimes you can wrangle it. So employees like, uh, I'm going to give up a bit of my salary. And, okay, if you guys decide to be nice, like, that's cool. So that actually was something that was liable. I did not take the option at a startup. And um, if I had, uh, my financial picture if I would have just done it for like three or four months and just figured out how to do it, uh, I would be in much different financial situation than I am now. Um, I was super conservative, but again, it's a startup. Like you don't know that they're going to get yeah, bought for you don't. like $150 million. You're like, Oh, I just took no salary. And now 
that stock that uh, they so generously gave me was like worth twelve cents. Like that, you just that's never rolling know the dice, though. Around. That's rolling right. the yeah. dice. Yeah. So, so there's that. The other thing that I would say is, uh, I joined when I joined when I was at CenturyLink. I was the acquirer of Tier Three, which was a startup, and I was on the integration side of that. So we were pulling in a startup. When I joined IBM, even though I joined IBM, I didn't join Blue Box. I really joined on the blue box side. So I was on the acquiree side. I'm not so sure that I would take a role again of a company that's just been acquired and try to do the integration thing all over again. Um, You know, some people, there's a lot of ways you can do it good and you can do it bad. And I'm just, I'm, I'm at this, at this point, I'm kind of not digging the whole jump onto a company that's just been acquired and try to make them successful internally because there's a lot of different variables and like, you know, like anything, it's, it's a gamble on if you're going to be successful or not. Um, that being said, I, I, you know, I've made it through, you know, a bunch of reorgs and, and some other interesting stuff happening at IBM, but you just, I, I have a very, if anybody ever wants to talk offline about, the science of big companies acquiring little companies. And there's tons of people who, who know this stuff already, but if you want to get my take on it, like they, I have seen a lot in the last three years that I've been around. Um, and I can, you know, it's, it's just, to the me, it's art, just like, yeah. The art and science of integration, um, obviously, you know, personally just being, well, you're living it. Yeah. being through one, it, it, it is, it is really interesting. And I think you have some, some interesting points. If you, if one wants to look at, I think people often say, you know, well, are you a, a startup person or a big company person or even a medium sized person? Um, but it is a it's like a fourth category to be a part of an integration process. Oh, because yeah. to your point, I think that um, it, either you're into it or not, but it is a kind of um, there's an internal work. There's it's different work. So I, I think it's it's kind of a great bit of wisdom you're sharing in that be aware if you're going into that process because we're certainly in a market where I think we'll see lots more of this. I mean, it's always existed, but it's really a hot time for mergers and acquisitions. It, it's just, it is times. And, and I, I can tell you, um, the, the human factor and, you know, we, we, we always are, are both of our podcasts, I think, touch upon people changing and what that means to them, either in their mm-hmm. career, their personal life. And it's always constant and it has to keep moving. And I can tell you, like, I've seen two, you know, I, I've seen two sides where, you know, people who've done startups before experiences, but it's us versus them mm. so much. And when you either join, when you're the acquirer, you don't necessarily pay play favorites because you're like, I want to see this thing that we bought be very successful. When you're on the side of the acquiree, you see, a, or, or so, the, the acquired, you see a lot more of us versus them, you know they're a-holes like we they just want to change it and it's like whoa 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 you you know you and and there, there you know that there's responsibility on both sides to make sure that you're fostering the good things out of the startup that you bought and then you're bringing in process and all these good things into this into the company to make them work better um but man that that stuff gets it gets it gets pretty interesting depending on the company that 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 you're at and it can get very intense and that's one of those things where, you know, I probably would walk right back in, even though I say I, I wouldn't, because you hope that out of this, 
new merger acquisition, whatever it is, that you're going to make this wonderful, beautiful unicorn all over again. <laughs> I, I like it. So I'm, I'm still not sure what you would never do again, but uh, I feel like there's still some good advice in there. Well, well played. The, ne- the, the never do again was, was join, join either somebody who's getting ready to be acquired or somebody who's just been acquired. Mm, yeah. No, I actually think that's kind of a fun topic and probably a, a great suggestion for something we will talk about in the future of life, life through an acquisition. Because uh, to your point, it lasts longer than you think it will. It is actually a style of workplace. There's startup, midsize, large, and acquisition process. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a different life. Absolutely. You know, Matt had a question when we started this podcast. And I think we answered it, but I, I think we answered it in a really interesting way. Matt, Matt's question kind of boiled down to a, a rhyming couplet was, uh, how do you know when it's time to go? And what I, what <laughs> I, what I thought was fascinating about, uh, about this journey that we went on with Ed was that, he, you know, there is not an answer. It wasn't like, oh, you know, 18 months, my time's up. It was right. at each juncture, depending on, you know, your, your financial condition and your, your responsibilities and, you know, the condition of the company and the condition of the economy and who you know and who has been talking to you and, like, who have you worked with before and, you know, the particular conversation and their needs, it all, it was different each time. So I, I think, you know, I think that's a very mature answer, but unfortunately it's not a simple one. I don't know, Matt, is that, that's what I got out of this conversation. Oh, yeah, that nailed it. And the other question then, like, I, I really appreciated Ed being so open about was, is it a good or bad thing to hop around? And he highlighted some of the positives. Like, there, there is sometimes a great monetary incentive that the 3% drip year over year is nothing compared to jumping between companies for 20%. Um, but then there's also the fear of needing to explain yourself at every juncture along the way. So the, it's, not, it's not a simple answer on that side either. Yeah, I think, you know, kind of just to put a finer point on it, you have to prove that you can stay someplace at least more than a year and a half to two years. I think yeah. once you once you hit the two-year mark, you've kind of disproven the, the job hopping thing. Because I think if you're not a very productive worker, there's something about you that's not going to work out. It's usually evident within the first year. Maybe you get to a year and a half. Um, so it's important to try try to find a job after jumping around two to three times that you can stay at. Hopefully you find that. Um, and then the other thing is around, around being a right time, you can't be afraid to go. Like you can't every, every one of these instances, when I said I was ready to go and I knew I was, you're sitting there in this weird, you're, you're sitting in a chair talking to somebody about going to their company and you're trying to work it out and you need to make sure that you're super sure that you're not going to look back and say, Hey, that was a big mistake. Um, and if you do that, you, you have these, it's not that the hairs stand up on your arms, but it's something similar where you know this is real, and that I'm ta- I, I basically made a verbal commitment that I'm going to do. I'm going to probably move to this company. And when you do that, you don't even talk to like the people that you have a relationship with inside the company who might be hired. So I didn't go talk to Chad when I said I was going to leave EMC. You send it to your direct line manager and you turn in your resignation. And you're like, here we go. But you can't yeah. be afraid to do that. Like you. You have to have stones to, to make big changes in life. And I think, you know, that actually started for me uh, later in life. I didn't start making big risks or big changes until I was 20. And when I, you know, the first one is to start going to night school. And I was like all nervous about how that was going to impact things. And then, you know, 
over time you 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 just make these these changes and then some sometimes they take a lot of courage to do both in your personal life and your professional life i mean you, you decide to get out of a relationship you get a divorce like though this is these are times when you like make decisions and i think that's more of where you will see a pattern between people is that they've got the willingness to make those huge changes and say look whatever happens happens but hopefully i'll wind up uh better on the other side well, and something else I want to point out is uh, we were flippant in some ways, uh, as if you are you are a job hopping millennial, to use John's phrase. You you did the work. the The point is you don't cruise into these jobs because you haven't done the work to deserve to be there. And um, I think all of us get questions all the time of you know I'm frustrated. What can I do? You pointed out night school. The there are things. There are times that you have to do things that are over and above what your day job is. Um, it's not an or, it's an and. And it's so boring. And I, I feel like I sound like the lecturing school marm that I am. <laughs> but uh, uh, but in the truth, I, I don't know that there's as much magic. I, we're, all, we're all blessed with a bit of luck. I'll take mm-hmm. that any day of the Absolutely. week. Absolutely. But, but you can make your own by being ready, being ready, like you said, having courage and being ready when the luck comes. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better. Well, so Ed, a really amazing conversation and appreciate you giving us a little uh, behind the music, if you will, to the, uh, the, the podcast persona we all know and love. Um, if people want to follow up with you, where can they find you? Uh, I'm Ed Sy on Twitter. You can check out the Speaking in Tech podcast uh, through iTunes or whatever your, I, I, your I, iCast, iPod podcatcher your podcatcher app of choice is um and and that's that's pretty where much where you'll find me well really appreciate you joining us tonight and uh looking forward to more more podcasts in the future that's right thanks for having me i can't wait to have you back on yoko (laughs) well it's what i do (laughs) until next time this is the geek whispers with a little hybrid speaking in tech over and out You've been listening to the Geek Whisperers podcast. Tune in on iTunes or Stitcher for regular stories of technology careers, cultures, and lives. Share it with a friend or invite us to an event through our website, geek-whispers.com. Find us on Twitter at geek underscore whispers or at jtroyer, mjbrender, and comsninja. Thanks for listening and see you next time.